0: welcome to explore the space we're digging into healthcare issues that matter most our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers
1: there is a gulf between healthcare and our communities this is the place to talk about it now here's your host dr mark shapiro
0: welcome back to explore the space podcast i'm your host mark shapiro before we get to today's episode a thank you to Lori bedke and creighton university for sponsoring this episode Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.crayton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode is Dr. Wes Ely. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine and the co-director of the Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is also the author of the incredible new book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, and he joins me to discuss What he has seen over the arc of his career as an ICU physician and the genesis of this amazing book that I think is really going to stand the test of time as a a pantheon book within our profession that medical students, residents, fellows, attendings that we all need to read, spend some time with and reflect on. This conversation goes in some really remarkable directions, and I think you are really going to enjoy it. Definitely check out the Archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me, mark at dot and hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. Wherever you download your podcast, you can find Explore the Space. Please do leave us a five-star rating and a review. Please do subscribe and definitely share the show with your friends and colleagues. That really helps us out. So now without further ado, Dr. Wes Ely. Wes, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thanks, Mark, for having me. This is great. What a treat
0: this is. It, you were very kind. You sent me a copy of this wonderful book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, and you did something without me asking, which I loved. You inscribed it. So I wanted to say thank you for inscribing it. I'm a book collector, and the, the harsh book collectors would say you only want the autograph, and I don't agree. I like to mark, or do, and I like an inscription. So thank you very much for inscribing my copy of your book.
1: Well, let me tell you why I did that, because I've been following you on Twitter and your podcast, and I have been so inspired by the way that you bring out the best in stories and you teach us that humanistic side of things. And I just felt like I had to make it personally to you for that reason.
0: Well, I'm delighted that you did that because now it's a like a proper pantheon book. So you read me right, and I really, really appreciated it. And I, I love that you kicked this off by the introduction of storytelling. We like to talk around books when people come on who've written a book because I want people to go to your book and say, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to download it. "I want Because that's how we keep the book industry thriving. We got to sell books. There is so much in it. Um, I don't even want to start with the book. I want to start with your Twitter feed from today. You said something on Twitter that I loved. You wrote a very long thread this morning and you made a comment in it that we have to recognize when technology is a false solution. I stopped when I read that in the profession of medicine. We have to realize that when tech, when, not if, when technology is a false solution. Can you set some context for me? It's a massive statement, and I absolutely loved it. It resonated very deeply with me. Absolutely. Can you set some context
1: around that? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, early on in my own career, before I had all this gray hair, I thought that <laughs> you and me both, buddy. <laughs> I thought technology was my job. Like I yeah, really did yeah. think that. I thought this, yeah. this is my job. The technology yeah. is my job. And in, in every deep drawn breath, I talk about how the first patient, Sarah dies, and I had nothing to do for her. And the second patient, Teresa Martin, you know, I had everything to do for her and she lives, but she lives this trashed life. She has post-intensive care syndrome. She can't even walk. She has rocks in her elbows and knees and, and, and she's just all scarred up. And technology was a false solution for her because we pushed it so far that it injured her beyond repair and the whole rest of her life. And she was in her 20s at the time. She spent in, wheel, in and out of wheelchairs. And um, so let me tell you the last part of, of the answer to your question, which is the term malignant normality. It's a very interesting term, malignant normality. This guy Lifton wrote a book and he used this term malignant normality to indicate when we begin too much in society or in medicine to accept something as the norm when it is a dangerous norm to accept. And I think all too often, Mark, we think that our harm will come from an errant central line or a bad intubation or you know something like that, when really our harm actually more often comes from accepting usual care as good when it actually needs to be greatly modified to make things safer for patients.
0: It's an incredibly compelling way to think of it especially when we think about how steeped in technology every step of care delivery is now and how that is part of our training and how residents look for jobs based on which EHR they used in residency because they don't want to have to go through another EHR training again, how the technology is so normalized and how the technology that is part of these unbelievable interventions that we can make we can get lost. It builds its own momentum. It becomes its own weather system. And we we lose track of the ones that we're actually the ones in control of the weather system, not the other way around. And
1: it's, we're in a weird crossroads. This issue of technology being a false solution also plays out, you know, in so many ways in our lives as physicians, but also just as people, we think I have problem X, the solution is Y. And oftentimes that becomes very clearly not the way to go. But because of our commitment to our first decision, we stick with it and we keep going. And it's just better to kind of quit while you're behind sometimes. You and I have just met in a previous life or in a
0: parallel universe. What is your profession?
1: I think it's some sort of shaman or some sort of healer who didn't know formal medicine, but just wanted to be looking at somebody in the eyes seeing what their problem was and accompanying them in some way.
0: I was going to go with a similar sort of thing, the sort of philosopher druid (laughs) and the way that you reflect on these things because, and the thing that I like about it, the thing that I liked about that statement and that I, that I feel like really permeates the book is it is a pushback. I took it as a pushback to the momentum and the weather That we're experiencing within our profession i've been doing this for a while so have you it's different than it was and i'm not saying it's all bad but it's important to have voices that say some of this stuff carries its own harm our best intentions can carry their own harm this momentum of technology we're the ones in control of it not the other way around but we have to be reminded of that
1: there's a story in the book about a guy named rob harmer and i've never read that story out loud yet in a book reading and I'm not gonna blow it and tell the reader what happens here, but but listen to this. This guy, Rob Harmer was essentially a CEO executive of a major company. And by the way, every name, every person in every deep ground breath is a real person. None of this is made up and none of the names are changed either. They're all real people with real permissions. And in fact, on our website, we actually have a photo gallery that you probably haven't even found yet, but it, on, on icudelirium.org, There is a photo gallery that shows everybody's pictures. So you can go see these people. They're real. Rob Harmer is shown there with his wife and children. He was this executive. He got necrotizing fasciitis on his arm. It just was completely a fluke thing. And it ruined his life. And I I want the the specific stories that his wife tells us are like him going to Neiman Marcus or some hardware store or something and buying something that makes absolutely no sense at all. And he has to strap it to his car and get it back to his house. And she's like, what is going on? This guy is a mathematician engineer and his brain is not working anymore. And it, it was because the usual care he got was injured him. It was wrong. And it, 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 it treated him in a way that dehumanized him and left him with dementia and it it ruined his life. That's what I'm talking about, and what we need to fix.
0: You mentioned this person's wife, and one of the things from your book that struck me, and it brought home what I I already knew and I see every day, is that the attention paid to family members of people who are critically ill, we have opportunities to do that differently. We have opportunities to do that better, right? You 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 even named it right the F. To denote the family members who are traumatized. Walking into an ICU room as a physician and seeing someone lined and tubed is shocking. Walking into an ICU room and seeing your loved one lined and tubed, I have not been in that position. I don't want to. And I can imagine that it would be extraordinarily traumatizing. And I wanted to just say to you, first off, I am grateful to this book and to your work for putting that under specific on to specific relief so we can really say that while we're accounting for what's happening to this person their family is legit being traumatized it's not because anyone's doing anything wrong but the 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 context in which they find themselves when they walk into the intensive care unit and find their loved one holy smokes and we have an opportunity to care for them too
1: two contrasting quick anecdotes if you don't mind is that okay please fred reyes was a patient who got COVID, he's in the book. And he was a, a Mexican-American who had a lot of prejudice in his life. He gets COVID, comes into the unit. Um, I was helping to take care of him. His wife is not allowed up there yet. We're still in lockdown visitation wise. She, Sharon, his wife became the first COVID spouse allowed back in Vanderbilt. And but the day before she got allowed in, she got a call. From one of our team members and she was on the phone with him for three or four minutes and then they were said okay well good talking to you and she said wait a minute wait a minute that, that's all that what what that's what what more and the person said to her well i mean i can tell you ten thousand things but and she was yes i want to know the ten thousand things that quote stuck in my head when she said yes i want to know the ten thousand things we are harming them by keeping information from them And it's actually something that Rena Audish and I wrote about in our our Washington Post editorial op-ed about family visitation. We talked about it as two types of injustice, testimonial injustice and epistemic injustice. Testimonial injustice is when we silence someone. And we know that we silenced people all through COVID by over-sedating them and immobilizing them. But it's also epistemic injustice. Episteme is knowledge. And so epistemic injustice is when I hold knowledge that I don't give to the family member. That's not fair to them. And we have to do better next time. You know, there were people who thought that I might get lawsuits from this book. You said it's a pushback. People were worried that people would sue on this book. Now, that, none of that has happened since the launch of Every Deep Drawn Breath. And I don't think it will, because I think people recognize that this is a call to arms to do better, not something that needs to go into the court system.
0: I I certainly took it that way that it is from the place of we have been through much and we've been through the pandemic and obviously the COVID-19 pandemic informs your book. And from that comes opportunity. It's not a place of like trying to trash one element of our profession or uh, policies that were made or things like that. Like we were all doing the best that we could in extraordinary circumstances. There's lessons to be learned from it for the next time it happens. I am curious to know. This book I get the sense was has been a, a journey of some years. How much of the book was done when everything changed and the COVID pandemic hit full force? And how much did you then have to pivot, change, amend or just keep on going adding in the stories, emotions and experiences born of the last 2 years?
1: Yeah, I I would put it at 50-50. I, I okay. you know there it's been a decade I've been doing this research for delirium and, and ICU acquired dementia yeah. for 20 years. It's been a decade that I've wanted to write this book, but I knew I couldn't write it until we had solid answers about antipsychotics and things like that. And we'd really built the ABC DEF bundle. And so that really didn't happen. Our New England Journal paper for anti- saying that antipsychotics don't fix delirium, the Mind USA study came out in 2018. That's right around the time that we had proven that we could reduce delirium in patients by about 30%. For your non-medical listeners, uh, I, you know, that means that, that 30 less percent people are getting confused and having brain failure in the ICU. That's a huge deal. And we did that through a safety bundle, kind of like a pilot would use to get you across the country. And I was about halfway through with all of this when COVID hit. And then I thought, this book isn't now irrelevant. It's actually more relevant. Because this I mean, the purpose of every deep drawn breath is greatly amplified by the pandemic. And uh, I hope that the readers feel the same. I think in 2030 that this book will have every bit of relevance that it has now. But the co- the COVID pandemic helped it. And so I just then started to put COVID stories all throughout the book. And that's how I kind of navigated that.
0: So I get the sense then that the the kind of the I guess the wireframe of the book, the the narrative arc of the book was pretty locked in. And then the anecdotes fit in nicely to amplify the points that were already being made. That's
1: how I did it. Scribner, yeah. uh, you know, the, the editors and the publishers at Scribner were were very much into this book and they thought it was going to be something that, that could help people. And I appreciated them for doing that. And then when the pandemic hit, they were like, now it's even more important. Let's, let's keep going. So that's, and that, that was fun to pivot like that as an author. I wrote, you know, I get up at four or five in the morning and write a lot of times for a couple of hours. And and uh, that I was just really thankful that I didn't finish this book before the pandemic, because I I think that that the scary stuff that happened with covid uh, made it a better a better message for the reader.
0: I I agree, but it didn't feel shoehorned in either. It felt like. Like I said, I felt like as I read it, that there was a natural progression. You you were already writing the book when this new extraordinary experience of the pandemic entered all of our worlds and it folded itself into the narrative. It's not shoehorned in, but it's also not just about that. And I actually really liked that about the book because it it could have been more clumsily done and it's
1: not. Oh, and we worked, I mean, I worked so (laughs) hard on this. It was a total life journey. And, you know, the reason was this book is not for me. I'm not making a penny off this book. Every penny where every deep run breath goes back into the hands of the patients and families because we're setting up an endowment for them. So that's why I was so committed. If we're gonna do things like, with that money, we're gonna hire social workers, people to help them, patients and survivors, navigate insurance and disability claims. That's a, it's a quagmire. They don't have, they, people can't do that stuff. And they end up getting financially bankrupt, losing their job, getting divorced. And there's just so much pain and suffering that we want this EDDB, I abbreviate the book, every deep drawn breath EDDB we want this EDDB endowment to be there for them um and that's that's the that's the real overriding purpose of this of this whole project
0: and i think part of that noble work is helping people understand and when i say people i mean professionals politicians lobbyists everyone the ripple effect of critical illness does not stop on the day of discharge from the hospital or the day of demise, if someone doesn't survive, it ripples and it ripples and it ripples. And people are asked to reconcile the things you pointed out around paying bills, dealing with insurance, dealing with denials of insurance claims and all this stuff while they're trying to grieve. It's a, it's a, it's a level of trauma and it's a level of dysfunction. that's just, it's, it's a huge burden to place on anyone.
1: It really is. You know, we here at the center, I, I run with with another doctor, we run a CIBS center, CIBS, which stands for critical illness, brain dysfunction, and survivorship. And we have about 120 people in our research center. We're funded by the NIH and the VA. And we have now taken on, in addition to the science, the humanistic component of this, which are all these support groups, Mark. And we have support groups for COVID survivors, for spouses of COVID survivors. We, and we have, you know, 15, 20 sometimes 40 people, depending on the group. And they're from all over the country and even the world. And they grow. And we're now expanding to many d- different groups so we can keep them a manageable size. But in those groups, Mark, what happens is that people share the most personal and intimate ways that they are suffering. And I myself am a person who attends Al-Anon. I don't mind saying that out loud. Al-Anon is an anonymous program, but I'm allowed to say that I go to Al-Anon. And The reason that I think Al-Anon is a beautiful thing is that it's helped me recover from the way I've been injured by other people in my family who have addiction. It's not my addiction or anything. It's not AA, it's Al-Anon. And in our support groups, a lot of them are in recovery from their critical illness. And the concepts that people need for healing and recovery are really more similar than they are dissimilar across different types of injury. And I hope that people will realize that after critical illness, like you said, they need to go into some form of a recovery program, whether it's one of our support groups or some other thing. But but the injury is ongoing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> having taken care of lots of people over the course of my career with critical illness, having had friends and family afflicted, it's... It, And I know people who are listening to this are going to have their own head nodding and their own reflections about this. And the journey through the book, it's, it's evocative in many ways. And the two things that actually really jumped out for me are, and in speaking with you too, the two words that leap out are time and energy Hmm. and time leaps out at me because you said you wake up at four o'clock in the morning to write your book, and then you're going to go to the ICU all day during a pandemic. The way the depictions of you and your teammates interacting with patients and their families demands a lot of time, requires a large investment of time. And when you have an ICU that's full, pandemic, no pandemic, we know ICUs in the United States in general are always, if not close to, max capacity. In parallel, there's a requirement of energy to execute on all of that. And our energy, we know, is finite. But as I hear you speak, I hear lots of energy. How do you reconcile time, your commitments of time, your use of time, and then your energy stores and your restoration of your energy to continue with the vision that you've just laid out?
1: Thanks for asking that. And uh, I I love to learn from listeners, too, When they, if they ever want to email me and tell me what they do, because they might disagree with what I'm about to say, but... You know, one of the things about the journey in the book, and the book is not about me, but I do reveal some personal things. It's a work of narrative nonfiction, so it's about the patients. But one of the things that I reveal is that I, I'm I'm also processing shame and guilt of my own early time as a physician when I was too distant from patients. You know, Osler talks about equanimitas, the equanimity, and I, I kind of have a tendency to overdo things sometimes. And in my desire to to have equanimitas, I think I distanced myself too much from my patients and it became a a source of burnout for me because I wasn't connecting enough with these people who were in need. I think that mercy is me being involved in providing mercy to patients is a way for me to have a burnout prevention because I feel like this is my job. This is my vocation. It's my calling. And mercy for me is when I dive into the chaos of somebody's life and provide lifting and healing. And so, for example, a COVID patient that I had recently, she's crying, I'm in the room with her. She's, she's, she's got a high flow nasal cannula on, she's probably going towards intubation, which she actually did, but that day I'm suspecting she's getting sicker and she's crying and she says, Dr. Ely, I, I wanna tell you why I didn't get vaccinated. And I said, well, that's, that's your call. I mean, I, I'm not asking you that question, but, but you feel the need to tell me. She goes, would you please tell my family to get vaccinated? And here's why I didn't. The man, so I, I I knelt down with her by the way. So now picture me, I'm kneeling down because I view this as holy ground. She's revealing to me personal, intimate things. I'm holding her hand, looking her directly in the eyes. The man on the TV said that they were trying to get rid of people like me in the population and that scared me and I didn't get vaccinated. So what's happening in my brain? I'm thinking, I'm kneeling, holding the hand of a woman who's a victim of misinformation from some guy on TV who's saying that they're trying to depopulate society of certain populations. So that brings out all of my heart. It makes me dive down in with them. And you mentioned time. All I wanna do is spend time with her. Now I have other patients who are sick, but I'm, I'm going to give her the amount of time it takes Look her in the eyes and let her know this. I am not going to leave you. Our pay, we are here for you. And whatever is going to happen with you in the next hours and days, we will not abandon you. And it doesn't take that much time to relay that message to her, does it? We can all do that.
0: That series of sentences at the end is a skill bundle that we have an opportunity to be sure every single healthcare professional is comfortable saying because just the act of saying it out loud so there's no guesswork the time itself the there's no one in there with a time with a stopwatch
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's the sensation it's the emotion it's the connection it's the exchange of truth it's the 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 shared understanding that comes when you say that why do we feel discomfort in saying something like that to a patient because i would submit it's not common discomfort might be the wrong word why is it not usual and standard behavior.
1: I think that we've done wrong to our medical students and taught them, keep your professional distance, keep your professionalism, don't dive in too much, you're gonna get hurt. They're gonna die and you're gonna get hurt. You don't wanna get burned out. What I've learned is it's the opposite of what I was taught. I think that I have a a higher propensity to get burned out if I don't make these personal connections and I feel like I'm a shell of myself and what I'd much rather do, and what I now do, and I don't want to live that the old way anymore as a physician. The way I want to live is that that connection that is so personal that I am drawn in. You know, there's another story in the book about a woman named Shonda. She has HLH. She's very sick, um, and she says to me, "Dr. Ely, I'm a I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter." And what happens is that over the next couple of days, her disease just swirls and even beyond the speed of which I think it's going to swirl. And she and I get drawn in, like imagine, imagine thread getting twirled around a stick, just getting further and further and further built on itself. And I found myself just immersed in her life and her story. And at, at first it felt somewhat reckless for me, but I I didn't I couldn't stop and I didn't want to stop. And I'll never, ever forget those that that relationship that we had. And I wouldn't have it any other way anymore. It's just a different way of, of practicing medicine. And I think we can teach that to medical students. We can teach them compassion is something we can actually teach and overcome this this other older way of of teaching them to stay away. There's a very specific way that
0: you lay out for us in the book to do that. And for those who have the book, I don't normally do this, but for those who have Every Deep Drawn Breath, page 184, middle paragraph. And Wes, I asked you if you wouldn't mind just reading this segment for us that starts with ICU diaries for a couple of sentences, because this is the part for me as I read the book that I wanted to ask you about. And what you just described, that's these three sentences in the middle okay. of the book, page 184.
1: Absolutely. And this is by the way in a chapter entitled Finding the Person in right. the Patient. I love that. <laughs> I You're finding I love the it. person in the exactly. So, ICU diaries give family members an important activity and purpose during long hours at a loved one's bedside and help patients process their hospital stay after discharge. What I hadn't realized was how they would help me as a doctor. The handwritten notes remind me that my patients have a life beyond their ICU room filled with moments and people that are important to them.
0: Are you the only one when you see those handwritten notes? How does the rest of the team respond? Have they come to understand the handwritten notes, the ICU diaries? Have they come to understand them in the same way that you did? Is this a point of teaching? When you're rounding with the multidisciplinary team, do these things come up as a point of conversation so that your insight around it and your experience with it percolates out?
1: I hope so. I teach on rounds to the medical students and the interns and residents that I say, you need to write in this diary for yourself too. I said, this is a point where you can actually be selfish and realize that you are going to gain as a physician by writing in this person's diary. Yes, you're helping them. And yes, technically the diary is gonna be their property, but you will carry with you the idea that this is part of your job. It's part of the way you serve other people is by getting connected at this level, not just writing for an antibiotic.
0: I wish I had done that sort of thing in my training. I think it would have helped me process what I was experiencing in a very, very different way. And I, it's something that as I read it, I was like, boy, this is something that I can add into my own practice now. I mean, why not? I'm still in the middle of my career. It's not going anywhere. I, I love that you are unfettered enough to be able to put these ideas into a book that's going to get broad attention because it puts the ownership then on the reader to decide what they're going to do with it. It works. It's effective. It's very, very powerful. It's, it's not, uh, it's not a time sink that doesn't, that makes it so you can't provide good care to the rest of the patients that you're responsible for. It, it, it peels away the reasons not to do it. And I think that that's very, very effective.
1: You know, I love that. And I, I don't want any reader to leave this. You know, you and I both have our warm and fuzzy side, but I don't want any, any listener or reader of every deep drum breath to think that this is all warm and fuzzy. So let me give you no. a bit of data here. Yeah. If we look, when we built the ABCDEF bundle, which I just call the A to F bundle, which basically is make sure people aren't in pain, try to wake them up every day, try to get them out of the bed. And if they're delirious, run the Dr. Dre, which is a a great mnemonic because Dr. Dre is a rapper and an earbud guy. It just means think about diseases that can be causing delirium, drugs removed, and environment. So disease, drug removal, environment, D D R E. Dr. Dre. When we built that, it was built on 35 to 40 New England Journal, JAMA, and Lancet papers. So very robust and about 400 total peer-reviewed papers. We then put it together and ran it through the SCCM's ICU liberation program Funded, by the way, by one of the world's billionaires, who's um, Gordon Moore, founder of Intel, because he had a bad ICU experience and he was mad about it and they wouldn't let his family in and he had delirium. So he said, You know what? I'm funding something to make this better. And that became the A2F bundle. We now have data on over 30,000 patients. And here's what you get the higher your compliance is with these steps, these six safety steps, the better the compliance. The, the lower death, the shorter the ICU and hospital length of stay, the less delirium and coma, lower likelihood of being discharged to a nursing home, and lower likelihood of bouncing back to the ICU. So this is hardcore, robust data, and, and you nobody can say it's warm and fuzzy, but I do want to say one more thing about it. There's an intangible side to this, because yes, we're, we're treating with analgesics, we're stopping drugs, we're getting people off ventilators, But what's the intangible about adding a family member at the bedside with a loved one and having them help walk them and get them out of that bed? Something happens in the mind of our patient that says this. You thought enough to get me out of the bed. Therefore, you must not think I'm dying or else you would have just left me in this bed. And I actually had a patient last week say to me, A survivor in our support group said, when they got me out of the bed, I realized they didn't think I was dying. And that's what gave me the will to live.
0: One of the traumas of the pandemic that I am still trying to figure out, and I understand better now that we have visitors again in the hospital, the first visitor I had with one of my patients, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. And they looked at me a little quizzically because we'd never met before. And I said like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. And they really, they looked at me and I said, I'm sorry, you're the first visitor at my patient's bedside in over a year. It's great to have you here. I shudder to think how I would feel if I was hospitalized and alone. And one of the really insidious things about the pandemic is that we had to make that call, At, at least while we were trying to figure out what was happening so that we didn't, right, we were in that space of trying to flatten the curve, acknowledging all of the trauma and inequities that came with it it's it's a just a tough one to reconcile and i hope that it, the next time this happens we can be more sophisticated around what we do with visitation acknowledging the primary importance of it that it's not this optional variable thing that it needs to be a cornerstone of care particularly in those who are critically ill that's another one of the things that comes out of this book that is so informative for me and that i appreciate it because i think we're There's a lot of things that we have to reflect on, and we're not even in a period of reflection because we're still in the midst of all of this. That needs to be different somehow. I know that you and Rana, who I hold in the highest regard because she's Rana, have have written about how are we going to actually enact systemic change for the next time this comes up, acknowledging the primacy of patient visitation.
1: Very important. You know, a lot of people have said, next pandemic, are we going to have to go through the same thing? I think that we did the, here's a here's an Al-Anon uh, slogan for you. We did the best we could with the light we had at the time. And many people have heard that before, but that's kind of like, you know, we didn't know that we could use PPE to safely protect ourselves. We didn't know that. And we didn't have enough PPE. We didn't have enough. Yeah. 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 Once we got the PPE and I went through the entire Ooh. pandemic and so did you, I, I didn't get COVID um, until I got, I'm now I'm triple vaccinated, of course, but, but um, that PPE works. And I think when the next pandemic comes, we can take it to the bank that we know how to use PPE now. And yeah. there's no yeah. reason to make people go through what I call anti-medicine, is not having family there, it's, it's anti-medicine. Yeah. And um, you know, th- I think of one of my patients who's in the book named Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy, Jimmy was from the jail and he had a big set of cuffs on his leg. And I tell you, Mark, he was dying. This guy was, he was dying. I mean, we don't always know, but sometimes we absolutely know they've turned this corner dying. And so we worked to get the cuffs off of him. He lifted his knees up. I wanted to restore it. You know, his dignity wasn't removed, but he didn't feel dignified because he was cuffed on a ventilator in the bed. We got all that removed uh, by by telling, I actually wrote a prescription to the jail that said my prescription is uncuff him. And, um, and then we worked to get his sister there. So then he's on the bed, he's in the bed, his sister's present. First time he'd seen her in two years. That guy is still alive. He is still alive now. He's out of the hospital. He made it. And what? And he tells me what? May, what made? Why did I make it? Because you treated me like a person, and my sister came to see me, and that's what he needed. It was not my antibiotic. I mean, the antibiotics helped. I managed his ventilator with you know low tidal volume strategies, et cetera. But I think that what really saved his life was that intangible part about love.
0: What does love do? You and I practice a similar brand of medicine. There are things that happen that we cannot explain. I've done this like you long enough to have seen things. I don't know the answer and I don't seek to be able to explain it. I just own that I was there. And that is sometimes it's tragic and sometimes it's amazing, but it's always unexplainable. And that is, a, and I think most physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals who do this carry those stories that I saw this thing today. I don't know exactly what I saw, but I, I know it happened. I know for sure that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that we can write about them, not just as anecdote in isolation, but as part of a different sort of cause as a part of a call to action to say, look, there are concrete steps that we need to take in this Space of improving ICU care um, and filling them in with the power of these stories, I think, is just absolutely remarkable. Do any of your teammates, do any of the folks that you work with or trainees or anything, since the book came out, reached out in ways you didn't expect, responded to you differently than they had previously?
1: Yes, they have. One of the funnest things that's happened is a lot of the medical students and and residents have told me that they started keeping a diary now of their patient stories. and that they're writing. And I think narrative medicine, which I get into in the book a little bit, is really a powerful way for us to process our emotions. And so last week, um, a a, a woman came to me and said, I am now writing my patient stories down and wanted me to read some of them. And many others have told me they're doing that, but she actually let me read some of them. And we sat down and, and I went through them with her. And I said, now, why did you write that? And what was important about this story? And why did you... And getting to process that with her, what a, what a tool we could use for medical schools and residencies if we all started, not all of us are writers, but if we started doing that more often, I think that there's, um, there's something to be said for that.
0: I think so too. I also think there's something to be said for the importance of this book. There's a, there's a, a shelf of books about our profession. It's 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 not that large. It's the shelf that I keep of the ones that they're of a moment, but they'll stand the test of time. I don't know if that if that makes sense, but they're mm-hmm. they capture a moment in time, but they will stand the test of time. And this is one of them. um Thank you. I didn't know what to make of it when I read it. I also I loved reading all the blurbs. You know, B.J. Miller and and Rana, and it's like if these people are are, are reading and writing about your book, that's very very exciting. It's good for us to keep these um, milestone books, these touchstone books, because they capture that moment in time, but they also are illustrative of just sort of where we are hoping to still go. And so congratulations and thank you for doing that because we needed that for where we are and we'll refer to it as we go forward and hopefully – those who are moving through their careers, early stage, the the contemplative stage about whether to enter the profession, those who are having a hard time with why are they still in the profession after all they've been through. It's tools like Every Drawn Breath that will hopefully allow them to find a place of restoration, a place of energy and passion so that they can continue on a road that feels good to them. So thank you for doing that.
1: You're welcome uh, so much. You know, I, I, I want to just say that when I was a young boy and, um, and I was working on a farm and I, I worked with these pickers. And I talk about this at the beginning of the book, but I I was reading Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and she was silent. She was she she had years of her life, she didn't talk. And I saw the pickers, and their life was silence. They didn't have a way out. And so I just decided, as you did as well, I'm sure, to to give people a voice, to serve them, to be present for them. And years later, yeah, I walked into a, a, an exam room one day and Maya Angelou was there and I got to be her doctor and learn from her as she was creating a poem for Bill Clinton at the end with writing this book. She's of course deceased now, but in writing this book, I got to meet her son, Guy Johnson. And in talking to Guy Johnson, who's a poet himself, I asked him, what was it like to grow up under, you know, under your mom? And um, the reason I'm bringing this story up is that what he said this quote that he gave me from her, which is in the book, it's the first time ever this Maya Angela quote was ever came about, is something that we can keep in our hearts on that pantheon of, of medical books. She said to him, I write from the black perspective, but I aim for the human heart. And I thought, okay, because I come from you know, my own perspective of privilege and, and lots of my colleagues come from lots of different ways. But if we all aim for the same thing, which is the human heart, then we have a common goal, a commonality. And whether we're in a pandemic or not, Mark, we can, we can join together in an effort to, to tre- tread towards that common goal and find the best way forward. And that's really ultimately what Every Deep Drawn Breath is about, is doing our part to aim for the human heart. I love it. Where do people find the book? Oh, am, anywhere your books are found, book, Goodreads, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, um, you, you name it. But there's a, there's a short video on our website, icudelirium.org. There's a short video that you can meet three patients. You can meet Titus and Sarah Beth and Lovemore. And then there's that gallery of photos of the, of the patients. You want to see who they are. Uh, one of them, Marcus Cobb, is holding his own heart. Uh, his story is amazing in the book. And there's a picture of him holding his own heart there. And um, and I'm on Twitter at Wes MD. Uh communicate to me, let me know your story, and I'd love to be involved and and meet people. And we'll have links
0: to all of that in the show notes. Wes, what a treat. Thank you so much for the book, for putting that time and energy into it. And thanks for coming on to talk about it with us. This was phenomenal. Thanks, Mark. My privilege. My thanks once again to Dr. Ely for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space Podcast. Links are in the show notes. You can go there and find a link to his website and also links to find every deep drawn breath. If you have the opportunity to get yourself a copy and read it, you definitely should. And if you are in an environment where you work with students or residents or fellows or anyone else making their way into the ranks of healthcare professionals, offer them a copy or talk with them about it. See if they've read it. It's, it's one of those books. It's worth spending the time on. My thanks also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening as well. Lots more great content coming up. We're going to finish 2021 strong, I promise you, here at Explore the Space Podcast. Definitely subscribe wherever you'd like to download your shows. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. And you can email me anytime, Mark, at show.com. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing
1: to Mark at Show.com.